This episode is a conversation with Beto O'Rourke. We discuss guns, mail-in voting, weed, and the novel coronavirus. It first aired on April 21st, 2020. At that time, this podcast was sponsored by CSHS JSA. Please subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your friends. It's free, just like our country. As this is the first episode, um, before we begin, I want to tell you a little bit about the podcast. Thomas Jefferson said that a informed citizenry is the bulwark of a democracy. The Be the People podcast was started to challenge and inform listeners with different and unorthodox viewpoints on a variety of political and cultural issues. Through the Be the People podcast, we hope to help create the informed citizenry the framers envisioned by showcasing these diverse views and ideas. Enjoy. Thank you, Ben. Um, thank you all, and really appreciate you having me on. And I understand from talking to Cynthia just now, there may have been some confusion on the time that this was to start on our end. So apologize for that. But thanks again for inviting me to join you. And Ben, if it's, if it's okay with you, I thought I could just make some, some brief remarks. And then okay. what I'd really love to do is have a chance to uh, answer any questions that um, you or, or anyone on the call has. Does that sound good? That sounds uh, fantastic. Okay. So uh, again, how cool that you reached out to me and, and asked me to participate in this and uh, was honored by the request and so grateful that it worked out that we could connect this way. And um, it's really interesting. You know, I've been at home for, uh, and you all probably have as well, for the last four or five weeks and been spending a lot of time with my family and a lot of time inside um, the four walls of this house. But um, there is a silver lining in this and that I've been able to connect with people, albeit through, you know, devices and Zoom calls and been able to um, find some really inspiring stories of how people are meeting the challenge that we face as a, as a country right now. And there's plenty to be pissed off about or frustrated by uh, or, uh, you know, blame to cast. But when I think about the really inspiring stories that we're seeing, um, frontline healthcare workers who are literally taking their lives in their hands by going to the hospital every day, whether it's a doctor or a custodian or a nurse, um, you know, our first responders, the emergency medical technicians, the police officers, the firefighters who, who are doing much the same. And then I think about, um, I heard a story today about a woman who works at a Walgreens pharmacy here in El Paso. She is the only member of her family uh, of seven that's able to get work right now. Everyone else has been let go from their jobs at restaurants or small businesses or wherever deemed non-essential. And so here she is earning 10 bucks an hour uh, and probably not a living wage to begin with and certainly not now under these circumstances, but risking her life every day so that we can buy groceries and medicines and uh, so that we can all be okay. And, uh, and she uh, is gonna be dependent on going to the food bank in El Paso, um, which is providing meals for, you know, uh, 7,000 families a day right now in this crisis. We're seeing lines that go back two, three miles long 
at the food bank for people picking up a week's worth of, of groceries and, and meals for their families, lines that we haven't seen in this country since the Great Depression. And so I think about, you know, that cashier at the Walgreens. I think about the staff and the volunteers at the food bank. I think about folks who are making donations to ensure everyone's okay. I think about those frontline healthcare workers. And there's a lot to be proud of right now in this country. And then, and then maybe last point, Ben, and then very happy to take questions. There's also a lot that has been laid bare by this crisis. So meaning things that have always existed in this country, but weren't often talked about, um, but are noteworthy now because of what we're seeing in the midst of COVID-19. An example, in Chicago, where African-Americans comprise 30% of the population, they are 70% of the deaths from COVID-19. In the state of Louisiana, you see very similar numbers. Uh, African-Americans comprise less than a third of the population and are almost three quarters of the deaths in that state. It's nothing to do with COVID-19 and nothing to do with this current pandemic, but everything to do with systemic and structural inequality and inequity in access to healthcare, in uh, access to uh, economic justice and criminal justice and a whole host of other issues. So whether it is that dynamic or one that is borne out in the unemployment numbers that we're seeing when you look at economic disparity and economic injustice in this country, there is a lot that we have to work on once we can all get back to work. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's not just making sure that folks are COVID-free or recovered if they have mm -hmm. COVID-19. It is making sure that this country truly works for everyone. So that's, that's something I'm gonna be focused on going forward. So anyhow, thanks for having me out. Look forward to answering any questions you have. Uh, well, thank you so much. Um, so our first question comes from my good friend, uh, Van Dant. And his question is, is in lieu of the coronavirus crisis, um, do you think now's the time to implement a, a universal basic income, like one that was proposed by Andrew Yang? Yeah, I, I think that idea has a lot more currency relevancy right now than it, it ever has before. Um, mm -hmm. You think about all of the money that we are spending as a country to try to keep this economy from going into the worst depression ever. Uh, mm -hmm the money that we're gonna be spending to um, try to keep small businesses afloat. There's a very good, strong argument made that perhaps the most effective, efficient use of our money, these are all taxpayer dollars that are being distributed to this country, would be to send a direct cash payment at as high a level possible to uh, every American and, and do so on a sliding scale based on, on means. Um, and, and I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that. Now, should that be a basic income that you can depend on long after this pandemic has passed? On that point, I'm, I'm not convinced. Um, and I, I, um, I think it's probably an idea worth talking about and debating and discussing. Um, but I still think there are so many necessary jobs for us to perform in this country. And there's such a need to pay people who work those jobs a true living wage um, and make sure that they have paid family leave, universal access to health care and housing as a right. I think if you address those issues in those ways, I think we solve for much the same problem. Our uh, next question 
question comes from a, a friend of mine. Um, her name's Emma, and she asks, in lieu of the coronavirus crisis, um, do you think now's the time to implement voting by mail? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, you, you all saw the election in Wisconsin um, almost two weeks ago where the governor said, this is crazy. We should not be asking people to go out and risk their lives in order to cast a ballot. Let's postpone the election. And the Supreme Court, which happened to be a Republican majority, and this was an election to decide whether the Supreme Court would stay in Republican hands or have a new Democratic majority, decided to force the vote in the midst of this pandemic. And lo and behold, people actually took their lives into their hands, went out, stood in lines, and, and voted. And we have no idea how many people potentially contracted uh, COVID-19, how many people have recovered, how many people are, are still ill or lost their lives. But they were willing to do that because not only was that election on the line, but the future of the state of Wisconsin. No one should ever be put in that position again. And so I'm really grateful that Texas actually, mm -hmm. through a ruling that we saw this week, uh, and this is pending an appeal, um, will allow uh, mail-in ballots for anyone uh, who says that they don't want to go out and risk their lives by voting in person during early voting or on election day. So let's see if that decision is upheld. But um, to your question, uh, let's go beyond coronavirus and this pandemic and just make it easy for people to vote. Texas until 2018 ranked dead last in the nation in voter turnout. That should be to our lasting shame until we, we change that. Let's make it easier for our fellow Texans to vote, and I guarantee you they will. So in that same vein of thought, our next question comes from Shreya Majetti and uh, my good friend Nico. And Nico and Shreya ask, um, is now the time to develop secure online voting for Texans? I don't know, Shreya and, and Nico, you, you might know more about this than I do. Um, on, on the plus side, uh, it would be awfully convenient, and it certainly bears looking at in the midst of the pandemic where we're not supposed to leave the house. Um, you know, on, on the negative side, or, or my concerns would be around um, the security and integrity of our elections, and I, I, I'm already a little bit concerned that voting machines in many states don't offer a paper trail for us to audit votes that have been cast. Um, folks have shown that these voting machines can be hacked, and we know that countries out there, including but not limited to Russia, are intent on disrupting or changing the results of our election. So, you know, with all those caveats in mind, um, let's not be afraid of it. Let's, let's um, investigate, mm -hmm. understand, and if there is a fail-safe way to cast a ballot from the comfort of your own home, I don't see why we couldn't do that. Some states allow um, no fault uh, mm -hmm. vote by mail right now, um, which you know is also something that people were concerned about the integrity of at the outset. They were able to resolve those questions. So let's just move this over to the digital realm and see if we can address those concerns when it comes to voting by internet. Uh, Shreya, it was your question. Do you have a follow-up for him? Not particularly on this topic, but I did submit other questions. Okay, cool. Looking forward would to answering like them. Trey, would you like to ask? Uh, yeah, I can ask. I'm putting you on your spot, the spot. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay. 
So recently we saw that Sanders dropped out of the race. Do you think that positively or negatively affects the chances of the Democratic Party beating Trump in the upcoming election? I think everything about Sanders um, has, has been positive towards Democrats' chances winning, uh, starting with his participation in the race and the race he ran in 2016 in his service as a U.S. Senator and a Congressman before that. He has advanced so many ideas that started at the fringe of, you know, what was possible politically in this country and has moved them squarely into the mainstream. And it is no longer um, crazy to think that every American would be able to see a doctor or fill a prescription or see a mental health care provider when they need to as a basic human right. That was crazy talk 10 years ago. Um, that, that is going to be possible in large part because of Bernie Sanders, his movement, the campaign he ran, and the force of his ideas. That guy is among the most honest, authentic players in American politics in my lifetime. And so much good has come from that so far and will continue to come from that. And then to your specific question of, of his withdrawing from the race, I, I would say that the way in which he withdrew also helps our chances of defeating Trump in, I say ours, Democrats' chances of defeating Trump in November, and then actually um, implementing that progressive agenda that he was the leader of, uh, because so many people, uh, so many young people in particular at the vanguard of his movement are gonna force that to happen. They're gonna hold those, including if it is Joe Biden elected president, those in positions of power accountable for making progress on these issues. Healthcare, economic justice, criminal justice, and climate, gun violence, just to name four or five issues. My uh, next question comes from uh, Van Danth. Uh, my good friend Van Danth, would you like to ask the question on nuclear? Yeah. Uh, so my question would be, this is a little bit different from like the 2020 presidential election, but I was gonna ask what form of energy would you say that the US should rely on heavily when it comes to fighting climate change? and pivoting away from like fossil fuels? So the very obvious answer to me is wind and solar, in, in large part because Texas is such a leader nationally on that. We, we generate more wind power than does any other state in the union. And the investment in the infrastructure and the transmission lines was not made by wild-eyed liberal Democrats. Um, it was made by people like George W. Bush and Republican-controlled legislatures because they saw it as something that would be to the economic advantage of Texas. And it so incidentally also helps us to address climate change and reduce our dependence on fossil fuels. Um, I, I also tend to think that it would be impossible to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050, to get halfway there by 2030, which is only nine and a half years away now. If, if nuclear were not part of our energy portfolio. You obviously have um, questions and concerns around the safety of those installations, those nuclear power plants, after Fukushima and, and Three Mile Island and, and, and other nuclear power plant disasters. And then you also have to figure out where you're going to store the, the waste that is generated and no state wants it. Um, our state actually has accepted some of it. New Mexico's accepted some of it. Um, but that's, that's a big political battle. But I know that the will is there. And, and I know there's a way that we'll be able to achieve that. 
And then I would just say, incidentally, I think it's really interesting that this pandemic, which has forced us all to stay inside and to slow life down a little bit, has begun to show us what the world might look like if we could get our act together on climate. I mean, people in India who can now see the Himalayas, which they've been alive for six years, never seen them before. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of these videos of, of mountain lions prowling the streets of Boulder, Colorado, or you know, pronghorn sheep in, in, in a Welsh town. Um, it, it's like nature's taking over again. And it's fucking beautiful. And I would, I would love my kids to grow up in a world where it's safe to, to breathe the air and to drink the water. And, and only if we make really hard decisions. And, and, and talk about a place that should be leading in this, it's Texas. And mm -hmm. it should be Republicans and Democrats alike on wind and solar. And also um, making sure that we honor the oil and gas workers who have literally powered this country and gained us our energy and economic independence from so much of the rest of the world. Let's make sure they can transition into the next generation of uh, non-carbon mm -hmm. energy uses. And again, wind and solar, uh, not only are they the future, they're the two fastest growing jobs in the United States of America. Let's bring those jobs to Texas. Uh, so our, our next question for you comes from uh, Tyler, and then we're going to head over to my uh, good friend, uh, Sophia Almstone. And uh, the question from Tyler is, what do you think the future of bipartisanship is in the United States? So um, when I was in Congress, you all may or may not know this, um, I got um, a notice when I was in San Antonio visiting a VA hospital with my buddy, Republican Congressman Will Hurd, uh, graduate of uh, Texas A&M, I think he was a class president. Uh, that we weren't going to be able to fly to DC because there was a snowstorm, flights were canceled. Uh, we were screwed, out of luck. And uh, kind of on a whim, we ended up renting a car. It was the last car on the lot. It was a Chevy Impala and drove it from San Antonio, Texas to Washington, DC. I think it was 1600 miles. And for the next 30 hours, we live streamed the entire drive. This was back in 2017. And we talked about everything. Uh, some of the issues we're talking about, like um, you know, climate and different political leaders and the impact that they've had, different policy issues that we cared about. But then we also just got to know each other as human beings. And by the end of that journey, millions of people were following us live and tuning in and engaging in the conversation, asking us questions that we would, um, that we would respond to. And at the end of that, after we had you know, built this relationship and established this trust, we were able to work on legislation together. He joined an immigration bill that I had written. I joined a bill that he'd written to ease the path of uh, military retirees and veterans who wanted to work in, in public safety and, and remain in public service. Um, so from my personal experience, I know that it's possible. I also think it's the only way that this very divided, hyper-polarized, um, you know, uh, kind of mean, angry country, uh, at least publicly and certainly on Twitter, is going to be able to heal and come back together, is if I see you not as a Republican or you see me not as a Democrat, but as your fellow Texan, your fellow American, your fellow human being, and just realize, um, though we come to different conclusions on some things that I really care about, you're every bit as American, every bit as important as, as anyone else. And if I listen to you and find enough common ground, 
from which to move forward, we can still get something done for this country. So I, I may be naive, I may be overly optimistic. I think there's still a way to get things done on a bipartisan basis. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Sophia Amstel. Sophia? Um, so I was wondering what, how you went about going through a grassroots campaign in a red state like Texas. Like um, that was kind of unheard of until you kind of popped into the mainstream so much um, and with so much like news and social media and all those things. And I just want to know how that was like and what you did for that. No, I think um, it, it was really um, the only path we could take. So we started the campaign in early 2017. I was a, I think at that point, a two-term congressman from El Paso. I think maybe I'd just begun my third term or was about to begin it. Um, no, I'd just begun it. And, um, and I had no money, no staff, no name recognition. And so I was really just campaigning by myself. I'd jump in my truck and drive from one county to the next. And over time, you know, organically through uh, Facebook live streams, um, through town hall meetings, through stopping at bars and diners and donut shops, and just meeting people one at a time, one community at a time, um, this campaign really started to build and to roll. And we picked up hundreds then thousands and then over 20,000 volunteers who ended up working for me over the course of that campaign. We raised $80 million, which was more than any Senate candidate have ever raised in American history. And we didn't raise a dime of it from a PAC or a corporation or a special, it's all like five bucks, 10 bucks, 15 bucks at a time. Hundreds of thousands of people donated uh, money to the campaign. And I think it was just, you know, to your really good question, Sophia, about it being grassroots. We just stayed true to ourselves and, and honest to that, that grassroots ethos of going to every county. We went to every single county. Went to College Station a lot. Went to Bryan, Texas a lot. And these were places that, coming from El Paso, I thought, well, there's not going to be a, a Democrat there or, or anyone who will want to see me. We had some of our largest crowds in College Station of the entire campaign. And so um, I think just this kind of goes back to the earlier question about bipartisanship. I think just living by this idea that you're never going to write anybody off. You're never going to take anyone for granted. You're going to allow people to speak for themselves, get to know them, uh, find out that we've got more in common than divides us. I think all of that contributed to that, that grassroots success that we saw. And, and though it was really tough and, and a real grind at times, it was also the most fun I've ever had in my life. It was just um, an amazing adventure to spend two years on the road in Texas. So I loved it. And so if, if any of you and maybe all of you are thinking about running for office or are running for office, have run for office and are thinking about the next run, um, I would just say every campaign that I've been a part of that's been successful has been very honest, very real, very authentic. Um, knocking When I ran for city council in 2005, knocking on doors uh, and meeting literally every single voter who would decide that election and not having a speech or talking points, just listening to them, hearing what they had to say, and then including their story in, in the campaign that I ran. So um, for whatever it's worth, th those are some things that have worked for me. Thank you. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah. So we have time for just a, one or two more questions. And so our uh, uh, next question comes from uh, 
my friend uh, Emma. Emma, would you like to ask your question? Yeah, so how do you feel the government has handled the outbreak of COVID-19, whether it be on the state and or national level? Poorly, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, I want to make clear that I think our mutual interest is in um, getting through this and saving as many lives as possible and protecting as many people as possible. So, um, you know, I think that's where the focus needs to be. And we just need to help Governor Abbott and help President Trump do the right thing and support them when, when they do. Um, but, you know, we, we really were unprepared for, for what hit us. There are more deaths in the United States than any other country in the world. It's unclear yet. It looks like maybe new cases are leveling off in the US, but we've seen that in other countries and they spike up again. To be the wealthiest, uh, the most powerful, the most medicinally and technologically advanced country on the planet, and not to have enough masks and gloves for frontline healthcare workers or enough tests. We've only tested a little, little over 3 million people in a country of 327 million people. That is unconscionable and, and in my mind, un, unforgivable. Texas has tested fewer people than any other state in the union, which means we have no freaking clue how many people have COVID-19 in Texas because we just haven't tested them. Um, we have no clue how to stop the transmission of this because we're not able to isolate people or trace their contacts. Um, and though we only have, I think, somewhere around 400 deaths so far, um, you know, uh, 10 days ago, uh, two weeks ago, New York only had 400 deaths. They now have over 10,000 deaths. This uh, virus advances geometrically. Um, in El Paso, cases have doubled every three days. Um, so. Um, it's not been great so far, but um, I do think we're the greatest country on the face of the planet. I do think we have the political will and the wherewithal to get this right. There are leaders on a local level who are doing things, and there are people who are not in office. I mentioned those doctors and nurses and people at the food banks who are absolutely kicking ass right now, and I hope that we can follow their example. And then, then I hope for the country that, that Trump is successful. Um, and I hope Abbott is successful because their success will be our success. Though I don't agree with them on every issue, I want them to be successful in this because I want, I want us to be able to save lives in this country. Thanks for asking. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I know that we're really uh, pressed on time, but I'd love to get just one more question. Sure, out yeah. Of you, that'd be all right. It comes from uh, my friend Tyler Sutton, and Tyler asks, um, do you think there's a legitimate chance for marijuana legalization in the next eight years? Yes, I do. Um, more than half the states of this country have already legalized marijuana in some way, either for medicinal purposes, um, for recreational purposes, uh, for adults, and, um, and, and others have decriminalized it. And I, I want to say this, um, it's really stupid to use marijuana, especially at a, at a young age. Your brain is still forming and developing. Every test that I've seen of marijuana's effects on a developing brain tell us that it is not good. It, it will make you dumber than, than you are. Having said that, um, we have spent more than a um, trillion dollars fighting the war on drugs 
putting more people behind bars than any country on planet Earth. So however repressive you think North Korea is or China or Russia, we put more of our own behind bars and disproportionately they are black and brown. The white people and black people use marijuana at the same rate in this country. Disproportionately black people will be stopped, frisked, arrested, incarcerated, and upon release have a harder time getting a job or qualifying for a student loan. So, so the effects are profound and lifelong for people who are caught up in this criminal justice problem we have. So if you acknowledge that more than half the states have legalized it already, then you must also acknowledge at some point this will be, be legal in the country, whether you like marijuana or a lot or not. So who is gonna be the last American, the last Texan to rot in jail for possession of a substance that however harmful it might be to a developing brain will not kill you and is already legal in most of the rest of the country. I think that logic um, can pass uh, you know, any partisan divide. Republicans get that, Democrats get that, independents get that. Uh, in, in Texas, for whatever it's worth, marijuana legalization polls above 50%. Most Texans want to see that happen. Um, and then last thing, I worked six years on the House Veterans Affairs Committee working for veterans who had put their lives on the line for this country, going back to World War II and then as recent as Afghanistan. So many of them have come back and been prescribed opioids to which they've become addicted. Many of them have died. So many of the doctors working at the VA tell me that marijuana might be a much better prescription for those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or the effects of traumatic brain injury. When you think about those who may have a medicinal need for marijuana, whether they're veterans or folks who are going to chemotherapy for their cancer or any other number of reasons, also the humane thing to do. But it's not going to happen of its own accord. For, for those who believe we should take this step, it's up to you to lobby your, your state legislator, your state senator, and get them to do the right thing. But I think it will certainly happen before 10 years. It could even, some form of that could even happen in this next state legislative session in 2021. So excellent question. Thank you for asking. I know we're at time, but I think we all just want to say thank you so much for thank taking you. the time out to, Absolutely. to speak with us. Okay, thank you. Ben, thank you. Re really grateful to you all. And I, I hope that once this passes and once we all get to travel again, and next time when you're, you're, we are in your neck of the woods that I get a chance to thank you in person, see you all in person, and would love to follow what you're doing um, as you all get more involved, run for office, make great things happen in Texas, get back in touch with me and, um, okay. and love to, to find out what you're doing. So thanks again. That'd be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.